Before you're seated, we'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Kings chapter 18 once again. 1 Kings chapter 18. That uh, hymn reminds me of uh, Lashad telling me he's getting started reading Pilgrim's Progress. How are you doing with it, Lashad? Slogging through? Okay. I encourage all of you to read Pilgrim's Progress, just to be reminded of it. What a great book. And the promised land is the hope and the future of all believers who trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 40 through the end of the chapter is um, the culmination of the events at Mount Carmel. This is uh, what God did in providing rain to a land that was filled with drought. Look at verse 40. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and executed them there. Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. And he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up, looked, and said, There is nothing. And seven times he said, Go again. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, There is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away, went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Let's bow. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for the times when you display your power, your sovereignty, your majesty, and your grace. Thank you even though our lands do not deserve your blessing, you pour them out upon us for your goodness sake and certainly because of the work of your precious son that satisfied your wrath toward our sin. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and mercy. May we learn of you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Our passage of Scripture comes to this uh, great climax of what's been taking place. And we know that God sent that fire down to the altar and took up the sacrifice. And remember the significance of the fire. It was not a normal fire. Fire rises from below. It doesn't come down from above. And uh, from my days of being a forest firefighter, years and years ago in college, which is now I'm way beyond those days, um, carrying the Indian tanks up and down mountains and all the rest, you know, one of the things you learn is that fire goes uphill really fast. It goes really fast uphill and technically is supposed to come slower downhill. So there are times when, you know, you might be feeling like you're in a, a situation with a fire coming at you, go downhill so it goes past you if you can. Uh, this is not a normal thing for fire to do, to come down. And what you find it do is it takes the sacrifice first, which is very symbolic for us. You know, you can't go anywhere and get anywhere with God until the sacrifice of Jesus Christ has been applied to your heart. You can't. It's, everything begins there. And so we find the sacrifice taken first. This is what is the establishment of the reason why God can turn around and send rain after three and a half years for Israel without rain. They had been dry and suffering and struggling because they had been a disobedient land. They had turned after another idol, another god, 
the god Baal, and of course the Asherahs, the female side of that uh, worship structure that they had imbibed from the Canaanites around them. And God will not uh, allow that bifurcation of heart. There must be either he is God alone or none. And so we find God dealing with this nation, and he has dealt, dealt with the nation, he's dealt with Ahab, he's dealt with these prophets, and when the prophets of Baal, these 400 plus another 450 of Asherah, couldn't bring fire down from heaven, which they believed their God could, uh, then God turns around and actually demonstrates something that nobody had ever seen before, this fire descending from heaven and taking up the, the sacrifice, taking up the wood then, taking up the stones of the altar, taking up the water around the altar and the very dust that the altar sat upon. This is miraculous. The people saw that and their hearts were, were transformed. They were convinced and, and convicted. And they recognized by their very words that we read in verse 38 and 39, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. They are saying Jehovah is the one and only God that there is. There is no other. And they were transformed in their thinking because all of a sudden they realized, you know, we know what sacrifices are for. They're our substitute. They take our place. And the wrath of God fell on that substitute so that it doesn't fall on us. So the Lord is God. Believers, that's why the cross is precious to you. It's an awful thing that Jesus Christ, the innocent, had to die in our place. But believe this, if the wrath of God had not fallen on his innocent son, it would be waiting for you. Because you and I deserve his wrath. So the people cried out and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What an amazing statement. Can you imagine the crowd that surrounded that hill when they saw that fire and they saw what it did? And there's Elijah standing alone, ramrod straight as a representative of God. And the fire does its work and their hearts are transformed. And it's not just a murmur, but it's a shout from the people. I can't imagine what that must have appeared to be. What an amazing time. Verse 40, Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. And rightly so. The word execute is in there for a reason. Because it's not just an execution style death. This is actually they had broken the law of God. And this is the punishment. This is the price. And so they forfeited their lives. And this is the way God was expunging evil from the land. Oh, that we would cry out. That God would allow the purposes of evil to fail in our country. That's what we need to be praying as intercessors. And around this world, may evil be defeated. The whole reason why God allows the church to remain, according to the book of 1 Thessalonians, God lets the church remain on this earth, is because through the Holy Spirit's ministry in the church, there is a restriction of evil. There is a restraining of evil. Believers, that's our call. That is our task. And Elijah was able to have a part in that in a very visible way. Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. They seize them. These are the people themselves seizing them, dragging them off, and then putting them to death at the brook Kishon. I think it's fascinating to look at the word and see how it gives us information. There are some things that I wish were really more described in here. Here's one of them. King Ahab, what was going through his mind? 
I really would like to know. Here he has seen the fire fall. He has seen the same thing that all the rest of the people saw. He is standing there somewhere in either the crowd or near Elijah or somewhere maybe near the prophets of Baal. The prophets of Baal are dragged away. They are put to death. Maybe he's there watching. I don't know because he's got to go up to the mountain. It appears he goes down to watch. What was going through his mind? Well, you know, I'm married to Jezebel. She's the one who brought these prophets in and gave them this power. She's the daughter of one of the high priests in her own home country. I've allowed this to take place. Wonder if I'm going to be next. What's God going to say to me? What's the message for me? Well, God's not done with Ahab. But you know what's interesting is there's a measure of mercy given to Ahab. And that is, this is astounding. God's word to him comes from Elijah. Verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, go up and eat and drink. You know, in reality, that's all Ahab cared about. Why was he out looking for grass to feed the horses that not another one would die? It had nothing to do with people. He didn't care about the charge, the stewardship he had as being king over that northern ten tribes of Israel. There was not that heart for any of these things. He had seen the same thing the people saw, but his heart was convinced, but not converted. His heart was convinced, but not convicted. There was no work of God in his heart. He was just like any other ordinary human being that has no work of God or grace going on in their heart and soul. Saw all the same thing. It's an interesting thing, and I hope this is a little bit of a an encouragement to you uh, as a believer. I, I remember back on 9-11 and then the next week or so after that, and those of you who were alive then will remember this, all of a sudden it was okay to talk about God and faith and prayer. All of a sudden. I mean, it was like that. The whole nation had seen the same thing, but the whole nation all of a sudden became acceptable to the fact that we need to turn to God because where else do we turn? And for a period of time, there was a little bit of an acceptability to be, do something spiritual. And then time just goes by and it comes back to the same old battles of trying to put God out of schools and God out of the Ten Commandments out of schools. And there are still a few of them around, the vestiges of them, but they're still under lawsuit and all the rest. And you read these headlines on the uh, internet and in the papers every week. It's interesting. Now, as we go through the challenges to our economy and we watch the national debt increase and we hear about the earthquakes and the hurricanes and the tornadoes and the destruction and the despair and the unrest, and it's almost appropriate now in our day and age to hear someone say, um, do you think it's the end times? Do you think it's the end times? I, probably if you had a nickel for every time somebody said that to you, at least you'd have enough for a cup of coffee by now. Correct? They do talk to Christians. I mean, if, if you're known as a believer at work, somebody inevitably will say to you, well, do you think it's the end times? And they're just kind of idly chatting with you. They may be convincible, but what you're praying for is conviction and conversion. You know, believers, this is not the end time. Not in a technical sense. And I want to give you this little bit of information for you to share because though it's not the end time there are things that are you need to use as a tool to touch people's hearts 
In the Bible, the book of Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25, the Lord does talk about the end times. There are the wars and rumors of wars. There are the, 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 the circumstances and God's people being attacked. It's really Israel that's being talked about there. And there is going to be this intentional desire to stamp out God's chosen people. It's not that is the end time because then the Lord returns, which is his second coming. Before that, seven years of tribulation. Really hard, difficult things. Those are the end times. Now, are we getting close to the end times? It looks like it. Doesn't mean it is. There are always going to be problems. There are always going to be circumstances. Man is born to trouble like the sparks fly upward. And the question is not being prepared for the end time as much as it is, is your heart prepared to meet God? Because you don't know what tomorrow brings. You do not know. And unless God's working on that heart and on that soul, they will see these events just like Ahab did. And what is it they are concerned about? Just what Ahab's concerned about. When's my next meal? When do we return to business as usual? And you know, when someone asks you the question, are these the end times, try to find out why they're asking. Because they may be asking for, well, when does my bank account start to make interest again? When does my job become more certain? When can I make my house payment with ease? Those tend to be the normal challenges for most people if there's not a conviction. If you hear that in them, you know how to pray for them. But if they really are getting unsettled, which is what God does sometimes use events for. He did that with these people. There was drought for three and a half years. There's an unsettledness in heart. And when God does something really big and unmistakable, they cry out and say, the Lord, he is God. And believers, when you hear that little heart's question, try to discern what's asking it. Because when you get the concept that they really are concerned, that they might have to face God someday, then you have something to work with. That's the goal of all this anyway. Why does God bring troubles and trials? It's to drive us to our knees and to drive us to action and drive us to the circumstances of the day. But how amazing is it that Ahab doesn't say, oh, thank you, Elijah, that you didn't bring judgment upon me as you did these. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Elijah, what do I need to do so that this never happens again to God's people or to me? There's none of that. The only thing he's concerned about is his next meal. So that's what we find here. He goes up to the mountain. Look at verse 42. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. What did Elijah do? Well, he went up to the top of Carmel to pray. It is instructive for us. When the trials come and the challenges come, the way a real, genuine believer responds is a telling thing. He's driven to prayer. He's driven to the Lord and the quiet and the secret time with Him. Whereas someone who's just a nominal Christian just can't wait till things return to normal. Till everything's good again, till everything's right. There's a distinct difference between the two. Ahab goes up to the mountain to eat, up to his pavilion, ready to eat and ready to go. And there's not even a question about, well, when now is the rain going to come? You don't even hear that. He's insensitive to spiritual things, but not Elijah. Elijah demonstrates for us what we find in the book of James, where it says that he was a man who was fervent in prayer. He was one who prayed with all his heart. 
And he was effectual in what he prayed. Now you look at the text as we read through it and you don't see the word prayer. Prayer. As a matter of fact, you see his all kinds of things about prayer, but it doesn't use that word. It's James 5 that tells us that that's what he was doing. He's praying. So what we're finding in this text of scripture is something of a list of things or behaviors that are part of what is it to be effective and fervent in praying. What do you do? What must you Live. What are the principles of your prayer life that God would have you reminded of? And, and you know, you may know all of these that we share or as we observe them here. Hopefully you do if you've been around here long enough. But it doesn't hurt to underline them once again. To see them and see, is there something I can be doing better in my prayer life? Because it is a personal thing. You know, we saw uh, Elijah pray publicly back in verse 36. It came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Corporate prayer intentional public prayer is unique. It, it gets its strength from the quiet time in, in the prayer closet. You can just picture Elijah standing out in front of the people and crying out these words as he prayed to God. And there's a power to this that you, you get the picture of this giant of the faith standing there in front of these crowds and the enemies and Ahab. And there is not a quiver in his voice. There's not a question of whether God could do this. There is no apology or explanation. He just simply prays. That's his public prayer. But his private prayer is unique as well. Something happens in his private prayer. You see, a believer before men, men stands out as someone who stands with a straight back, a clear eye, and a conviction in his heart. In the quiet time, you're coming before your maker in a way that humbles your heart. And so Elijah displays something unique. And that's what we observe with him. He goes up in verse 42. He bows down on the ground and puts his face between his knees. You see, worship, the very word worship in the Bible means to bow. It means to get down before your God and humble yourself. I think it's sad in our day and age when we have forgotten the art of getting down on our knees to pray. It's good for you to do that. You may not have a very easy day to fill, and your time may be already filled, but find the time to get on your knees before your God. Because it's not before Him that you stand with a straight back. It's not before Him that your eye is clear. It's not before him that your conviction of your own right to stand before him is to be heard. Because we only come to God on the basis of the mercy and the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, before a lost world, you stand out, Christians, as the godly one because you're different. You stand out as the one with conviction. You stand out with, as the one who knows what you're about you know God's call in your life. You know your purpose. You know that as a Christian, you are wearing the uniform of a believer. And so you stand with courage because God gives it to you. 
but it comes because you've spent time before your Heavenly Father in that private prayer closet, so to speak, on your knees before God. There's something about that. And if you've forgotten to be on your knees when you pray, find time. Now, I know that times you get weary and there are difficult times where you fall asleep and all those things. I had a roommate in college who was one of these prayer warriors when I was just a, a 17-year-old little kid, so to speak. Uh, we had three, I had three roommates in this freshman dorm in this Christian college. And my roommate would wake up every morning. He was the guy under, the, under me in the bunk. We'd get up every morning and he'd get down on his knees and in his little three-by-five cards and he had his, his recipe box of prayer requests. And he would pray. Well, partway through the semester, I remember him waking up when I did, and he was on his knees because he'd fallen asleep praying. Those things happen. I know God understands that. Sometimes you have to pray standing up so you don't fall asleep because you do need to pray. But this picture of Elijah, he was too busy not to pray, by the way. He had just had this great victory, but he got down on his knees up on the mountain and he began to pray down on his knees with his head between his knees and worshiping his God because he needed God. He needed the strength and purpose and task of what God was going to do. Much is accomplished on your knees. And I would encourage you believers to remember that. This very first picture of what we see in the effectual fervent prayer of this precious believer and servant of God is that he took the time out to pray. Not only that, but he went apart, didn't he? Went up into the mountain. And there he went to pray. Distractions were put aside. It's hard to do that when you're a young mom, isn't it? No such thing as distractionless life, is there? And yet there is a good time when you put the kids to bed. There's a reason for a bedtime so that you can, make, you can take the time to pray. You can take the time in the morning before the kids awaken to pray. You need to find those times because you need to clear things out and clear your mind. I don't know if it's just unique to me or what, but I, maybe it's just the way my brain works. It takes me a while to get to the place where my mind is clear enough without distractions to pray. You know, you get down on your knees, you begin to pray, and all these things and thoughts are coming into your head, and you just, you just have to say, Lord, would you please clear this out a little bit so I can spend some time effectively praying? And so that's sometimes why a good little list is good for you. It gives you some clarity as to what you're looking for. But put aside the, the distractions. That's why it's often called a prayer closet, a place to go, a place that's always used for prayer. It's good for you to use that. I have a chair in my office that's for that purpose. That's all I use it for, one purpose, no other. And, and I would encourage you to find that, um, the habits of prayer that protect your time before your, your Lord. So he goes up into the mountain, finds that quiet place, that place away from distractions. All that's going on is down in the valley. All the people are walking home or whatever they're doing. Ahab's eating, but Elijah's alone praying. And we find Elijah on his knees. We find him beginning to pray with, with, a, with a heart that is expecting. He bowed down his face to the ground and his face between his knees, said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. There's a sense of expectation with what he's doing. He's, he is praying for something on purpose. Back in chapter 18, verse 1, the beginning of the chapter, we read these words, It came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. 
he has a promise, and based upon that promise, he goes to God and prays. There's a specific promise. And I believe that's where Elijah is putting his heart and putting his prayer. Lord, send rain. It was at a prayer that rain was stopped. He had been praying. God stopped the rain. That's why it dried up. It's going to be at a prayer that God sends rain. Are we surprised when God does nothing when we haven't been praying? Or are you surprised that when you pray general prayers that you don't recognize an answer because it was such a general prayer you didn't ask anything specific? So you can't tell what God did, even though God did answer. It does work that way, Christians. If we don't have specific prayers, effectual fervent prayer, an effectual fervent prayer is one that has a purpose to it. It has a request to it because it's effective. It's definable. But you know, it's got to come from a promise or it just comes from you. The Bible says that God answers the prayers of those who obey his commands. Well, then you need to know them, don't you? You need to not only be sensitive to his commands, but you need to also put them into practice. You want an answer to prayer? Be specific. But make sure the specificity is rooted in some foundation that came from God. So know your Bible. Know what he says and pray accordingly. In the book of Ezekiel, the Lord says that I will send rain, but you need to pray for it first. As you pray for rain, it will be sent. Isn't that something? Sometimes we have empty, barren lives because we've really not been praying about something specific. And yet we also need to do the homework and say, Lord, what will you have me pray? Because our prayer is in concert with God's purpose. God is not a genie in a bottle that if you just pray just the right way, you get three wishes. God doesn't work that way. God's your creator. So he knows what you need. It's like a child asking a parent for something. You know, sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is maybe or later. The parent knows better than the child is what to ask for and what your need might be. But sometimes the parent doesn't know what your need is until you ask. And so a child comes and asks specifically, and sometimes the prayer request needs to be transformed a little bit. Well, maybe this wouldn't be better, but this is. What do you think? Okay, yeah, that sounds good. God works with us in shepherding our hearts in just a similar way. Know the word. Your prayer is in concert with his intended purpose. As you see the Holy Spirit working in some area or burdening your heart in a certain way, pray along that direction because it seems to be the direction God's going. Look to the Word and see what He does. What are His habits? What is His, his natural activity according to His nature? What would please Him? What is, is tied to His holiness? What is His purpose? And when you learn that about God, then you know how to pray. Know your Word. Know the promises of God. And pour those promises back towards Him. And that's what Elijah's doing. Gets down on his on his, on his face to the ground, and he begins to pray. What is he praying? He's praying about the rain because God promised it. But God doesn't say yes right away, does he? God, God doesn't give the answer right away. There's no, there's no raindrops that begin to fall. There's no mist that starts to envelop the top of the mountain. There's none of that. As a matter of fact, this is going to be a miraculous rain as well. And just the way it's described to us is an amazing thing. And of course, Elijah uses terms that relate to where his prayer was going to go back in verse 41. There is a sound of abundance of rain. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew language, the word sound is onomatopoeia. You know what that is? The word sounds like it is. 
It's got the sound in the word that's the sound of what it is. So this sound of rain, sound, it, it's almost like a thunderous, heavy-duty rain that's going to come from that Hebrew word. Ahab, go eat, because I hear the sound of rain. So Ahab goes to eat. How did he hear the sound of rain? Was it because of thunder way off in the distance? Was it because of the feeling or the smell that you always get before a storm? Not a bit. It was just as dry then as it was the day before and as it had been for three years, three and a half years. Dry and the usual climate was different. That's what we learn with the little cloud of, that's the size of a man's hand. It was still dry. So Elijah goes up in the dryness and, the, and the, the dirt of the top of that mountain, and there he gets down on his knees and he begins to pray, Lord, you promised rain. Lord, send it now. So he sends his servant to take a look and take a peek. He says, what do you see? Go up now, look toward the sea. The servant comes back with a response. The servant went up, looked, and said, there is nothing. And seven times he said, go again. There is not a thing. It's blue sky, bright sun, bright water. There is nothing there. No rain. Elijah, in his definite prayers, away from the vague, vague prayers, continues in a fervency with a fervent heart. You know, go through the scriptures and see how people prayed. You find David saying, I panted after you, O God. You find Jacob saying, I will not let go of you until you bless me. And he wrestled with God. We read about Jesus Christ where it says he cried out, not with a mamby-pamby cry, but with a strong cry, with crying and tears. That's how we need to learn to pray. Not simple wrote words, not words that are repetitions that kind of just float along. You know, they don't have to be loud. They don't have to be often repeated, but they do have to come from your heart. And there has to be something of an investment of yourself in praying. And that's what we find Elijah doing. There is this fervency with his praying. You know, Paul was trying to be led of the Lord, and he tried to go north and east and south, and God said no. And then he says, Lord, what? And You're going west, Paul. You're going a different direction. I have this intent for you. This is the way you're going to go. There is an investment of self in prayer. It's interesting to also notice here that there's a watchful praying. He went up and he looked. And it says in seven times, he said, go again. Uh, there is such a conviction in Elijah's heart that God's going to bring an answer that, that he continues to send the servant back. Now, Elijah, why don't you just wait until you hear thunder? Just keep praying. Elijah, you know, you just have to pray once because God heard it the first time. Now, there was such a, a heart burden that Elijah had that he continued to pray. And he continued to send that servant back one, two, three, four, five, six times. Seven times. You just go back and look. And he went and looked. And what did he see? Verse 44, it came to pass the seventh time that he said, you know, there is this cloud. I, th I think I spy it out there. There is a cloud as small as a man's hand. 
rising out of the sea. Something tiny, way off in the distance. God answered prayer. God always does. And it was an answer that was not exactly what you and I would expect, and I'm certain Ahab wouldn't expect it either, but it was just a little tiny, little wisp of a cloud about the size of a man's hand way out there in the sea. God was doing something. God does some amazing things that look really small. That's why you've got to be fervent in your praying. That's why you've got to pray with a specificity because they're so small you might not notice. He does it all the time. That is the way God answers prayer. But the effect of that little tiny hand that God is bringing up out of the sea is going to be monumental. It's going to overtake Ahab and Elijah. Ahab's got a 17-mile chariot ride to Jezreel. He's got to get going. God does amazing things, often with the little tiny things, but they're always big when they have their effect as the way he sees them. And so we find this watchfulness. We find this persevering as Elijah continues to send. And, and you know, there's just not this immediacy that he would expect. But, you know, after all, Elijah knew that a little bit of flour at the bottom of a pail can feed you every day. Elijah knew that the little tiny things counted. And so because he'd had that experience, he knew that when that little tiny hand of smoke of uh, vapor started to come up out of the sea, that God's doing it. And there's an answer. I'm done praying because God's moving. Now it's time to tell Ahab to get busy and get at work. And so there's this persevering nature to his hand, uh, to his prayer. What's interesting to me is what we read in verse 44 down to verse 45. He says in the second half of 44, So he said, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot, and go down before the rain stops you. Well, you know, can you imagine the servant going to the tent or wherever Ahab was, and he's eating away because he's just filling his belly, and that's all he cares about. And he says, um, excuse me, King Ahab, uh, you need to get going. Well, uh, I don't see much out there. Why? Well, there's this little cloud about the shape of and the size of a man's hand. You need to get going so that the rain doesn't stop you. Seriously? What are you telling me? You know, the beauty of this is that Ahab had seen God work with nothing. And God had done some amazing things. And again, Ahab was convinced, but not convicted. He knew enough to get going. And as he got going, guess what God did? And it seems like it's this immediate thing. From the size of a man's hand, all of a sudden, you can just picture the great big billowy anvil-shaped clouds. The storm was upon them. God does some amazing things. God brought the rain, and here's what it says. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black and with clouds and wind. And there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. He didn't need to be convinced when the clouds began to come overhead. Prayer is an amazing thing. The book of James, chapter 5, Paul, or James says about, about Elijah, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. But yet Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. He's a man. You are too. 
You can be a prayer warrior like Elijah. But don't forget the little principles that are so evident in this passage of Scripture. The principle of alone time with God. The principle of being on your knees so that you can stand before men. The principle of being effective in your praying so that you have boiled it down to something definable. And that it is based upon a promise from God. Search the scriptures and find the promises upon which your prayers rest. So that you know that this is the way God acts. And you have that conviction of heart when you cry out to him that you know this is his character and his nature. And God will bless because God will use your prayers. He sends rain because people pray. He withholds rain because people pray. Are we in the end times? Not technically. Are you searching out people that need to hear about the end times? Absolutely. What's their motivation? Begin to pray that God will lead you to those people who are ready to hear. There will always be Ahabs. Convinced, but not convicted. But being Elijah, who has been used to stand before people and show the convincing and then the conviction that comes from the word. Because if you spent the time on your knees, in quiet, effectually, and fervently praying. I want to give you a moment or two to bow before your Lord and worship Him in prayer. Allow Him to show you in your heart where your prayer life can be strengthened. And if you've only been convinced, ask Him to convict. I'll give you a few moments to pray. Our Father, we come before you today realizing that we need to learn a lot about prayer. We need to practice praying. We know that the answers of God are given each and every day. And so, Lord, help us to recognize your grace and your mercy that you bring into our lives by answered prayer. And sometimes when we're just faithless enough not to pray, you give us grace and mercy. You care for us when we are senseless to those things that you have done for us. Oh, Father, awaken us to being obedient to you in prayer. May we, like Elijah, learn to pray for our nation. May we, like Elijah, know the blessing of convinced people and convicted people around us. And may we, like Elijah, be willing to put the hard work into prayer because it pleases you. It is that which obeys you. And it is that which you have determined to use in transforming this world around us. Teach us to pray. And Father, thank you that we have the privilege of an audience with you. In Jesus' name, amen.